Welcome to another episode of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley. Today we have Hunter Thompson with ASIM Capital. Hey, thanks again for having me on. Much appreciated. Absolutely. So to start off, let's jump right in. Tell us more about ASIM Capital and what you're focused on currently. So ASIM is a private equity company that helps accredited investors invest into commercial real estate with top tier institutional quality sponsors. And the company was really formed to mimic the investments I was making for my own personal portfolio. Basically, I saw an incredible opportunity in syndications, was very much drawn to a more sophisticated approach to investing in real estate than most people are when they get started because of the timing in the market, because of the network that I built up at the time and was able to leapfrog a lot of the fix and flipping and single family house stuff that most people do when they get started and entered into the world of 15 to $50 million purchases very quickly. And as I realized how compelling that structure is, where you can defer to someone else's expertise, I thought this is something that other people should be enjoying as well. And so I started bringing in friends and family and that grew from one investor, just me, to five investors to 10 to now we have hundreds and have purchased about $100 million worth of commercial real estate in a variety of sectors. So that's really what we do and how we do it. Great. A lot of good stuff to dive in there. But one word you said was institutional partner. So I like that word and I want to dive in deeper as to specifically what you're looking for from a partner uh, as far as their size of operation, infrastructure, and general criteria that, that makes you really look at somebody seriously to partner. Sure. So before diving in, just to provide some context, because I know that guys like you and I, we seem to get in this echo chamber where everyone knows what all these terms mean. And sometimes we can go too far down the rabbit hole without starting with the big picture. I think it's really important to understand, number one, the passive versus active approach to investing. I'm a huge proponent of even very sophisticated owner operators having a significant portion of their portfolio invested into asset classes that are managed by other operating partners. And the reason for this is a story that I tell frequently. Even if you have a tremendous market advantage and you need a market advantage to be successful in business, even if you're a market mover, you can have the rug pulled out from under you in a way that is almost unfathomable if you're overallocated to one asset class or one investment strategy. And a good example of this is Ike Batista. So he was a billionaire, one of the top 10 richest people in the world, heavily allocated to oil, was unquestionably a market mover where the price of oil would be correlated to his moves in the market. And then 2014 happened and everyone listening to this podcast has a higher net worth than Ike Batista because he owes about a billion dollars to various creditors. So that lesson is very powerful. So what I want to do is position myself in a manner that I can sleep like a baby not worrying about that. Now, I do need a market advantage to have successful investments and to produce outsized returns. So as a passive investor, what I do is I look for partners that have laser focused their energy, their expertise, their years, their relationships, their access to capital on a very specific piece of the real estate sector and leverage all of that infrastructure with my investment capital. And then later with ASIM, with our investors' investment capital. So that's how we're positioned as a company. We identify those quality strategic partners and then leverage their expertise. Now, as far as what we're looking for, 
a tremendous market advantage. And that market advantage can be brought on by a lot of those things. Um, I'm sure I know you, you like to talk a lot about the details, incredibly important tactics, strategies, software, infrastructure, number of employees. You know, we look for at least 10 years in the business, $100 million under management or more. I want to see what those assets look like that were taken full cycle, what percentage of those returns were generated by NOI growth versus cap rate compression. These are things that we can get into over and over again, and I'm happy to go into as much detail as needed. But something that I think is far more powerful that unfortunately for guys like you and I that are very data-driven is that who the underlying principles are and what those relationships are like is far more important than the tactic and the strategies. The tactic and the strategies are a requirement. There's no getting around it. If you don't have market advantage, you can't really succeed, but everyone can justify their thesis. The question is when things get tough, who, not how, who is going to solve that problem for you? And this has been something I've been harping on over the last 10 years, and it's been basically meaningless to everyone. And now all of a sudden, it means everything, which is exactly what I've been saying. So happy to go into more detail, but just wanted to set that tone because my entire due diligence process is checking the boxes off the list of the due diligence checklist for sure. But then as I'm doing that, reading between the lines to see who is the person I'm making a bet on, are they putting themselves in a position to deliver for their investor base or are they just trying to close the next deal and move on? Great. Yeah, we should definitely go deeper on that. One takeaway from the Ike story that I think that I want to touch on that is not very often talked about in our space is diversification. A lot of people talk about diversification away from your traditional mix of stocks and bonds into private real estate, but diversification across private real estate, I think is, is less talked about. And I think, um, funds for that reason are maybe not as valued as, you know, so mo most investors say, I want to be able to invest in a deal that I can see beforehand. I can, I can touch it, feel it, understand the financials, right? Investing in a blind fund where I'm not sure where the capital is going to be allocated is one of the biggest hurdles associated with raising capital for a fund. But, it's in, but then at the same time, I think a fund has those diversification elements that are extremely valuable. So what, are you, what is your take on diversification in general, and then fund format for investing in private real estate. Sure. So that's actually a really important kind of segue because you want to balance control with diversification. That's the key with passive investing. As a passive investor, I'm willing to exchange control to get access to multiple geographic locations, multiple property managers, multiple strategies, multiple ways of viewing the world and viewing economics and such. And so that's an exchange I'm willing to make. Now, in all fairness, as the principal at ASIM, we have kind of a hybrid approach where I'm intimately involved in a lot of the details and things like underwriting and, and reporting and deciding which properties are worth our investors' time and stuff like that. But in terms of portfolio allocation, I'll give you some metrics. So I'm constantly working towards having 10 strategic partners that I can rely on for the next 60 years. Now, that may be an endless pursuit because sometimes partners that you think you can bet your life on, they may come up short, change of personnel, change of market dynamics, where let's, and this is a really a silly example because we don't invest in hotels, but you could see a situation where if you were really bullish on hotels, you'd be pulling back on that. Well, if your entire 
relationship base is based on hotel industry, you've left yourself unable to participate intelligently in the cycle. And so that's what I love about this approach because as the, the tides change, you can leverage those relationships in different ways. So in terms of funds though, it's kind of a more pronounced version of this. As an investor, am I willing to sign a check, which to some degree, the only way I know how the capital will be allocated is through basically the, the fund template. We're going to buy properties within the specified template, and you'll have to, to a large degree, trust us to execute on that business plan. So from my perspective, I think that taking a diversified approach there is also prudent. So my entire portfolio is not invested in funds, but probably 25% is. But the benefit there is that I can write a $50,000 check and be relatively evenly spread over 20 assets all over the country. And you just feel very confident in terms of that, that amount of locational diversification, that strategy diversification, that market diversification makes me sleep like a baby. Right. Definitely going back to that sleep like a baby uh, idea. So relationships, relationships. Um, and you talked about at the end of the day, your due diligence can be boiled down to really trying to ascertain that quality of the principal, the relationship and, and, and who is actually responsible. So give us some of the, the key ways that you identify quality of character, somebody that's, that's all in you know, just things like that, that make you go, yeah, this is the guy that I want to bet on or girl. So yeah, hundred percent. So I'd say that every time an important claim is made, I'm looking to trust, but verify those claims. And this can be extremely burdensome. So take what I'm about to say and use it appropriately for your investment amount, because we're talking about writing very large seven figure checks. So it allows us the economies of scale to go through an entire due diligence process, the likes of which a passive investor cannot go through economically. So I'll give you an example though. When a sponsor makes a claim about their number of assets under management or a specific property that they own, we will pull title on those assets and follow the chain of documents until we reach them personally. Um, that alone can eliminate some challenges with fraud. Now, of course, we go on site, we visit the assets. I want to see, does this property manager actually know this principal? How long have they known each other, et cetera? But I think there's kind of a misconception in the industry where, okay, I found a sponsor. They seem to be trustworthy. Let me talk to some of their recent investors and see if I can back up some of their claims. That's a reasonable thing to do. And if you want to take the time to do that, I certainly suggest it. But I found far more noteworthy conversations come from other industry professionals that are third parties. So as an example, who is their property management company? Can I get on the phone with them? Who is their insurer? Can I talk to them? Where do they fall in the range of the insurer's clients? Who is their attorney? Who is their CPA? I want to talk to these individuals and just kind of back up the claims from a gut feel perspective, but also from a tactical analytical perspective. How many projects have you worked on with them? Do you plan on working with them in the future and stuff like that? And you'd be surprised how much you can get out of those. Um, something else I'd say is when we're talking to firms, we want to work with companies that are growing. Growth has risks though. There's uncertainty around risk. So just mitigating those unknowns is really important. Um, personnel, if you're able to accomplish your goals for 2021, would that require an additional personnel? Would that require additional branch 
of your company, how many people are you going to bring on? Because with, with that integration will likely come some challenges. There's going to be some turnover. So these are the types of questions that I'm trying to figure out how much of this is rinse and repeat and how much of this is a quantum shift in terms of the business plan or the business model. Got it. Good. So just to end on, on this topic, what are some example questions you might ask an insurance broker, a CPA, uh, an attorney, a property management company? How, I mean, just very basic stuff can get you a lot of answers if they have a great relationship, which is what you're looking for. So how long have you worked with them? Do you plan on working with them for many, many years into the future? Um, what's the size of their firm? You know, because you want to ensure that their claims are being backed up by those third parties. And the thing I like about the third party is that from a professional standpoint, they have a lot more to lose than an investor referral, which likely had a great time, which by the way, is not only why they're willing to take the call, but they're probably friends with the sponsor as well. And like I said, definitely do those calls if you can. I provide our investors those referrals all the time. But you gotta know, at the end of the year, I'm taking those referrals out to dinner so that they're willing to take those calls because these are young, I mean, accredited investors who have had a great experience investing with us. Got it. That makes sense. So let's dive into what markets and strategies you're currently looking to invest in. So I just recently wrote an article about this topic kind of in the post-COVID world or the current COVID world. Um, you can check that out at asymcapital.com in the article section. And I'll give you just a quick rundown. There's not a lot of change post-COVID in terms of our thesis. We've been very defensive since inception. That's the thing that I think a lot of people have said, but I will go on record saying we certainly gave up a lot of upside over the last 10 years because of the pursuit of a defensive strategy. So the mobile home park business, the self-storage business, workforce housing, those have been the dominant asset classes that we've been focusing on. The reason is that I took about six months to look at economic data from a real estate investor's perspective prior to starting my company. And I found a very clear and very compelling a case to be made for certain asset classes where the demand of the product is inversely correlated with the overall economy. Now, it may not be the case that the worse the economy does, the better the asset class does. I think people can get caught with that misconception because the thing that drives real estate values typically is debt and access to debt. So if that market dries up, everyone's going to have a problem in terms of liquidating assets. However, you can pretty much solve for the demand component. As an example, when people are downsizing, when people are shifting jobs, they're very likely to use self-storage. That's really correlated with uh, recessions and recessionary economic indicators. The same thing is true with the mobile home park business, perhaps even more pronounced. The worse the economy does, the more demand there is for affordable housing. There, of course, you have something that now everyone's very familiar with, which is that the supply-demand equilibrium is really favorable for investors because there simply aren't new mobile home parks being developed. But like I said, the caution is that that's a big-picture thesis. There's two big issues to be contemplating when you hear a big-picture thesis. Number one, as we started this conversation with, it's all about the personnel and how they're able to execute this business plan. Saying there's only so many mobile home parks is exactly like saying there's only so much land so real estate's a great investment. Now, how many bankruptcies were caused with that thesis? The other piece of that is that just because the demand is there does not mean that the lenders are going to be there. 
So when you start getting into these tertiary asset classes, which have come very popular recently and for good reason, there's a difference between the number of lenders in the space in something like multifamily versus the number of lenders in the space in a mobile home park that's 45 minutes outside of Greensville, North Carolina. You can get a much higher cap rate, but if liquidity starts to be a challenge, it goes back to how many friends do you have? If you've got a 300 unit Austin, Texas multifamily apartment, you've got a lot of friends that can solve your problem. You have a very small market, tertiary, high cap rate environment. There may not be so many friends when it really matters. A lot of great points there. Something I didn't want to go back to because you mentioned a few times, but some people may have missed it. The idea that in terms of valuation, there's really two major components to valuation. You've got the income side, which is, as you were talking about, demand-driven in many regards. And then you've got the, the cap rate side, or you know, basically the multiple at which the income is valued. So you have the income and then the multiple at which the income is valued. And so while a strategy that you're looking for to be defensive that maybe has low to even inverse correlation on the income side to the general economy, that makes sense. But at the end of the day, as you mentioned, you can't get away from valuations, which are universally tied to global capital markets, which are debt, equity, investor demand, right? The, the, the buying and selling market, the financing market. So that's a really interesting way to break it down. And I think it brings me to a, a great point, which you may want to comment on, is that this idea of, of not needing liquidity, right? Which is getting yourself into business plans that have legs. And if you need to endure a period of illiquidity, you can, you have the luxury of doing so based on your business plan of having ample reserves or having a, a longer term debt structure, things like that, that, so you don't get caught uh, at the wrong place at the wrong time. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there is a third party consulting company, Green Street Advisors tracks a lot of NOI across multiple different sectors. And if you Google their name and Google NOI growth, of commercial real estate assets, you'll see something I'm very proud of, uh, which is incredible NOI growth of the self-storage and mobile home park business far above anything else. The reason I say that I'm proud of it is that there was a time that I was a very unpopular mobile home park investor. 10 years ago, it wasn't exactly the same. And I spent a lot of my time trying to convince people of the model and now it's kind of become entrenched. Now, I wasn't responsible for the NOI growth. That's not the claim I'm making, but it certainly felt good to be validated by that. But here's the interesting thing that you're saying. The incredible cap rate compression that's taking place in the multifamily sector, the IRRs were actually much higher in multifamily as opposed to mobile home parks and self-storage over the same time period. So I want to have all of that, right? I, this is the point of this conversation, brings us back to the conversation about diversification. You don't know which way the tides are going to flow. I really like to focus on NOI because it's very, very predictable. And again, if you check out that chart, it's just, it's just looks amazing. But the reality is that's not the whole story. The other story is the participants in the marketplace and the multiple of income that people are willing to purchase that income for which is an interesting conversation, especially right now, given we're in the height of the uh, concerns around COVID, makes transacting very difficult because that income is not nearly as reliable as it was five years ago. So multiplying that income by 20 doesn't give you a more accurate purchase price. That would be like a five cap, for example. Right. And what's what bringing it to today is really interesting because a lot of sellers 
are maybe they're on the market, maybe they're not on the market, but very few are truly open to discounts. And they'll point to their financial statement and they'll say, well, look, I'm still collecting. Everything looks pretty fine. My occupancy is still high. Why would I take a discount? Right? They're only pointing to the income side of their valuation equation and they're not looking at the, as you mentioned, the durability of that income as well as the multiple of that income. So that's something that I'm noticing today where a lot of, a lot of conversations today are, well, you know, things are still performing. Why don't we just pay full price? And I think the challenge that we and a lot of other groups are having that, that are looking at acquisitions are, you know, are, are we changing our, our exit cap? Are we changing our debt assumptions? Are we changing our, you know, everything has to be reevaluated, you know? And so just pointing to the in-place income and saying everything's fine uh, doesn't work. Yeah, well, maybe it would work, but not on you and I, right? That's the whole thing. That's the proof. It is working on other people. And I'm not throwing anyone under the bus that's transacting. Don't get me wrong. That's not at all what I mean. But I'm saying we're not seeing a, there's a delta, there's a divergence between unemployment data, collections data, and pricing. Those three numbers are not really correlated right now in the sense that unemployment data is very high. Collections data is also very high. And the opportunity for pricing arbitrage does not currently exist because there's not a significant amount of distress. So I'm very interested to see what the collections data looks like over the next couple months and how things turn around. Absolutely. So moving on to the next question, um, we've talked about valuations and, and pricing. So let's jump into returns. And, you, and you've said you've seen fantastic growth in NOI on the self-storage and mobile home park side. You've seen cap rate compression drive returns in multifamily as well as pretty, you know, decent NOI growth. Oh absolutely. yeah, certainly. Uh, so what are your general return requirements? You know, what are you looking to, to deliver for your investors and, and what do you think is a, a good deal? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that, to be honest, but I'll, I'll go ahead and start with the, the truth and then I'll hopefully give something that's more reasonable than the truth or useful. So the truth is we are very focused on curating strategic partnerships that we believe understand their sector at a very high level. So I can give you where I currently feel, com feel comfortable but a lot of that is derived from relationships that we create over the years that control hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of commercial real estate. So from an underwriting perspective, I'll kind of give you my thoughts. Right now, I'm finding deals much more compelling. We haven't done a deal in 2020, first of all. Um, and again, that's not against anyone that has. I just, we haven't. Um, but the deals that I would be envisioning in the future becoming something that I jump out of bed and say, I'm really excited about this or interested, it's an absolutely hammered sensitivity analysis producing a 12% IRR. Now, some people may scoff at that, but when you factor in, call it a 1.5, 1.6 DSCR, uh, call it no rent growth for two years, call it really conservative assumptions regarding occupancy loss. You know, if we're cash flow positive at a 75% occupancy in a growing market that's 92% occupied with no rental growth for two years, and you're getting close to that 12 IRR, that's something that I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. I can wrap my head around that. And I haven't seen a deal like that. And the reason is because what we're talking about earlier, we haven't seen a lot of the sellers being able to say, that's a reasonable underwriting, you know? So I'm, but can I turn around on you and see, you know, first of all, what you think of that? And then also, where you're feeling compelled in the marketplace. Yeah. So just to clarify, 12 net or 12 gross? 
Good question. Net to investors. Net to investors. So 12 net is, is pretty great, especially if it's sensitized in, in any way, right? A lot of deals that we look at, uh, you know, at the, at the ask, it's razor thin numbers and it's still maybe getting to a 12 net. So I think the general market for if you just woke, got out of bed and, and bought the first deal that you, you saw or got a phone call from a broker and you just paid the price, I think most likely that's penciling somewhere around a nine or a 10 net. So that's kind of market. So a 12 is, is good even before you start hammering it on a you know, sensitivity analysis basis. So, uh, and then to, to comment on the sensitivities, you know, generally speaking, we're showing no rent growth for the first 12 to 24 months. Um, and then stressing going in vacancy a bit, depending on the market and, and what's happening. So we are definitely aware of those dynamics. And I think that's investors are asking to, you know, they're they expecting to see that from us. I think just like yeah. you are expecting to see that. So I think that's more normal in today's environment, but we are buyers, right? We are, you know, we're opportunists, we're optimists. We, we want to do deals. So we have to bake in some optimism in our numbers. And I think, while we should hammer the, the interim because it's very uncertain, we need to then be optimistic. And I'm hearing a lot of people saying, well, you know, we think there's going to be a rebound. And so, what, you know, typically we don't feel comfortable forecasting higher than 3% run growth, but we'll halt it for two years and then we'll, it'll turn back up and, and be 4% mm. for the next couple of years. So I've heard that as well. But to answer your question about return expectations and what, what, what gets us excited, we're typically targeting for a value add deal where, and, and there's, many ways that we define a value ideal, but kind of your fairway value ideal that's still financeable with agency debt. So long-term debt, so we're not taking bridge loan risk. That would be more of what we'd call a deeper value add or an opportunistic investment. Uh, so with a fairway value add, we're looking for about a 15 to 16% net IRR, and, uh, which is extremely challenging. And then we'd also categorize it with uh, you know, somewhere around 20% uh, revenue growth. So we're looking for our business plan to grow the revenue by 20%, right? And we kind of, that's one of our gauges of risk. If we're buying a deal and we're keeping revenue flat and that's just all we're doing, then we don't see our business plan as being very risky and we'd be willing to accept a lower return, lower to your 12 net. Mm -hmm. So, so we, that's one of our ways of gauging risk. So core plus, our core plus strategy would be characterized by longer term hold, better quality asset, better location, somewhere that we feel comfortable saying that this is going to be a good place and asset to own over the next seven to 10 years, right? So we'll model it over a longer term hold and uh, we'll get most of our cash, we'll get most of our return out of cash flow. That core plus strategy, we kind of top out as raising revenue by 10%. Anything more, now we're more looking at a, at a value add. So, so that's kind of our general return criteria. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not seeing very much of that lately. We're, we are seeing, you know, the the kind of the, the value add deals pricing more like with core plus returns, you know, so that's that, that compression of returns there and, and people trying to get the same returns as they used to, but by taking more risk, uh, which we think the opposite is what you should be doing and love to get your take on this is as the environment gets riskier and returns get skinnier, it's actually better to swim in the opposite direction and take less risk and accept an even lower return. Yeah, completely agree with you. Let me touch on one thing before we transition to that because it's a really important topic. I really like focus on expense reduction right now. And that's something that has been put by the wayside because of the market dynamics that we've been living under for the last decade, which is that infinite rent growth. But 
there's something really compelling. The last multifamily deals we've done have been with a real focus on expense reduction through economies of scale, through putting institutional partners in deals, which were quite large, but were managed by firms that had taken their foot off the gas. And a big reason that they were able to take their feet off the gas is that they were multi-billion dollar REITs that were going to achieve their expected returns through cap rate compression. And they didn't realize that their expenses had gotten wildly out of control and were not aligned with market dynamics. It's very interesting to see a world in which you hear 250 units, who's doing that? It's only the most savvy and sophisticated people in the world, right? So they don't ever make mistakes. Well, then what's the reason that these deals are ever trading hands? The truth is all these deals are owned and operated by people and people make mistakes. It doesn't matter how many billions of dollars they have under management. In fact, sometimes the more they have, the less of a good job they do. So I've been, man, we invested in a deal that the previous owners had a 62% operating expense ratio on a mid you know, 75, 1975 type of deal in a market where it should be 48%. But that's not about rent growth assumptions. That's driving returns through simply taking a property manager in, a, in the exact same market, five miles away, moving that property manager and that infrastructure over, changing the culture, changing the team and drastically reducing expenses. So that revenue growth that you're just talking about, that can be done two ways. And that way, especially late in the cycle, I find that extremely compelling because again, the unknowns are so limited, especially if you already own an asset in the market, have the exact team. So there you go. Yeah. I, l- I love that side of the equation. Absolutely. Any, anytime we can see a deal that has above market expenses, that's a, that's a very compelling business plan. I know lenders, for example, across the board are, are, are reticent to, to lend based on pro formas and rent growth and and oh, you're going to buy an already well-performing deal and upgrade the units and get an extra $200 of rent. You know, lenders don't even really want to buy that scenario anymore. So what, so what bridge lenders, for example, are looking for, they're looking for business plans, like you said, expense reduction, improved management, and lease-ups, right? It's so much more believable to take a deal from underperforming at 75, 80% occupancy and lease it up to the market rate of 93 than it is to take that 93 percent leased property and and push the revenue through renovations to that next level it's, it's just it's a challenging environment for that it might be possible uh, but you have to be very uh, careful with that can I get you to go back I don't remember the exact topic that I made you pause on before we moved on do you remember what you were talking about before because I wanted to discuss we're finishing up on return criteria not sure if that was it, but I'm sure it'll come to us anyway. All right. Just All right. feel free to pop in when we'll, sure. we'll just keep going and then, and then just pop in on that. So uh, one thing we can quickly touch on is reporting. Reporting is huge. And I wanted to tie it back actually all the way to your discussion about people and relationships and the trust. And I think reporting is kind of the thing we joke around about that, you know, we spend a lot of time on and nobody reads it, but it's something nonetheless extremely important and that you have to do. I think it ties into uh, the, the trust factor and somebody that's showing up and, and that it's an example of that they care. So, so what type of reporting do you like to see? So first of all, before I invest in a deal, that's a really good question for a passive investor to ask. And it's not asked enough. It just makes sure that you understand what you're getting into because if things are going right, Rob is right. Unfortunately, most investors don't read the reports, but it doesn't matter until it really matters all of a sudden. So 
you just want to know up front, can you give me an example of the reporting? Yes, I understand it's for illustrative purpose only, and they may not be the exact same numbers going forward, but give me the template that you're going to use so I can look at that going forward. Um, for someone like myself that's going through, again, a far more robust due diligence process, when I start doing due diligence on the property management company, regardless of whether it's in-house or not, I actually want to see the reporting at the property management level to that sponsor. Now, I may not get that reporting every single month if it's not needed. It's not, it's maybe a waste of my time, for example, but usually I do. And so I want to see what that looks like. Um, I think that's a really good strategy. And if you're a passive investor, you can always ask for that. It's just good to know what software is the property manager using? How much transparency is there between the manager and the owner? Because obviously going back to the passive approach, a big piece of this model, unlike a single family model where you hire a property manager and interface directly with them, there's a third party in between you and the property manager, which is typically the sponsor. So those are a couple of things I like to think about when it comes to reporting. Something else, uh, looking through the legal documents, which I know we'll all go to sleep if I go through all the legal document stuff that I have to review to feel comfortable. But one of the, let's say 10 or so things that I do suggest everyone look at is the reporting requirements, the frequency and the outline of which how much detail is going to be included in there. And that's a really good starting point. And also if you're a sponsor, this is probably one of the most important takeaways of this interview. If there's any, this is it. Old news does not age well. So if you're starting to see challenges at the property specific basis, increase rather than decrease the level of reporting and the consistency and the timing. If you are going to give your reports at the end of the month, two weeks later doesn't mean those bad reports that you're about to send out are going to be better received. Ramp up the reporting instead of quarterly, do monthly. I know a lot of sponsors have been doing that. We certainly have been. Uh, just because there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. You can't over-communicate when there's times of uncertainty. Great point. I like that a lot. So that's a good segue to asking a, a big open-ended question, which is what are some recommendations you have for sponsors looking to raise more capital? Oh boy. Okay. So I'll do a little shout out to myself. So I, I wrote a book recently called Raising Capital for Real Estate. Um, it was a massive undertaking and you can get it for free at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. Uh, the subtitle of the book is How to Attract Investors, Establish Credibility, and Fund Deals. And basically, I wrote the book because, number one, I'm extremely passionate about helping people take control of their financial well-being by getting money out of the stock market. We're all sympathetic to the view that the stock market is basically a casino, but people need the tools to be able to raise capital. And the reason I know this is that I was very like confident in my ability to do the skill. I had a knowledge, I had expertise, I had established a track record, I had established strategic partners and created an incredible investment thesis, the likes of which I would give exactly today with no changes. And I presented it in a room with 30 people, all of whom were accredited investors, so probably a net worth cumulatively of $30 million. And thought I was going to raise my first million dollar fund, gave the presentation and didn't raise $1. And I realized this is a different game. Trying to go from thinking that you can sell a product for a hundred bucks or 500 bucks to get someone to invest a hundred thousand dollars with you for 10 years. These are categorical shifts 
and it requires basically a pseudo-religious experience, it's not going to be done in a 30-minute luncheon. So I took time to figure out why I had failed so significantly. And when I say failed, the financial implications weren't the hard part. The hard part was I was committed to being a real estate entrepreneur. And you can't be worse at being a real estate entrepreneur than having no money to invest in real estate. And it was heartbreaking for me, okay? Embarrassing and got friends texting me, hey, great job. I can't wait to hear what the raise was like. I never wanted to have that happen again. So I did some soul searching and kind of realized I don't want to chase around investors. I want to have them chase me. I don't want to ever present in a room of only 30 people that are not already interested in real estate, that don't know me personally, don't have a connection with me. How am I possibly going to convince anyone to invest with me? I'm never going to put myself in that position again. And so what I focused on for the last 10 years was building an infrastructure to attract leads, nurture them through educational content, super scalable, recording things, sending them out, constantly nurturing that relationship. So by the time someone had the opportunity to have a call with me, they were already extremely familiar with me and basically just wanted to confirm that I was a real person. And that's what a lot of my business is, doing a lot of work for free so that when we do provide those investment opportunities, they fill up instantly. And so I went from failing to raise a nickel to raising you know, half, or excuse me, $5 million in three days, let's say. Um, then that was just as much as we could raise for the deal, right? It was oversubscribed almost instantly. Send it out on a Friday, done on a Monday. So the book is all the details of that. And Rob, I know you've read it. I literally tried to make it the most dense version of a book about capital raising, not just how to do it, but the exact apps, the exact strategies, the exact scripts that I use so that your deals can be fulfilled and you don't have to go through what I went through. Awesome stuff. Yeah, extremely actionable book. I love I love things that leave me with direct takeaways, new projects that I can then start, new ideas to think about. Uh, and so your book is definitely one of those. I highly recommend it. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes on that one. Um, is there anything you want to touch on before we sign off? Did, did you have that uh, thought come back to your head? You know, we've talked a lot about tactics and strategies, and I think that that's really important. That's really my bread and butter. Um, I should mention I have a podcast as well, the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. And if you like the way that Rob thinks about things um, in terms of the property-specific level, you'll probably like the way that I think about things in terms of the economic side of things. That's kind of where our niche is. Very, a lot of details, a lot of high-level operators over there. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. Um, but what I'll say is from a motivational standpoint, you've got to have both. You have to have the tactics, the strategies, and the relationships, which I mentioned, but you also have to have some grit and grind and hunger and hustle. And so don't be afraid to do things that are not scalable, right? So I, in my book and all the time, I'm focusing on, I don't want to be in front of 30 people. I want to be in front of 3,000. I don't care about the ability to close 3% if it's 30 people. I want to be able to close a quarter of a percent in front of 300,000. So I totally get that. But depending on where you are in your career, your schedule should always be full. So if you're listening to this and what you're thinking is, holy crap, I've got to fill up my schedule, do that. Don't worry about getting in front of 100,000 people or doing all this stuff. Figure out a way to fill up that schedule so that you're working, 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 working. Then once that schedule is full, start figuring out systems and processes and infrastructures and apps 
that can help you multiply your time. Because the difference between me and you and Warren Buffett isn't that Warren Buffett works three extra hours a day. It's that he's created those systems. But sometimes, especially with Instagram, people start to think, I need the Lambo or it's not worth it. Start by filling up this calendar and then start listening to those people that have the Lambo or whatever your thing is to get the most out of your time. A lot of people are talking about how busy they are and oh, I'm just so busy. I'm so busy. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I think what's way worse as an entrepreneur than being busy is not being busy enough and not having enough on your plate. And you're sitting there saying, I'm ready to work. I've, I've, I want to take action, but what do I do? What's the next step? And I think that's the worst feeling. And so having that direction is huge. And that's where, you know, anywhere from mentorship to your book to a podcast is, is so valuable to, to us entrepreneurs to just keep growing every day because there's no tests that we're taking and then the answers are given after. There's no job that we, a boss is giving us an assignment and then when it must be completed, right? We actually have to not only execute, you know, we actually have to decide what is worthwhile to execute on, which I think that's the most fun part of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Pick a direction and go as fast, as hard as you can and make it your identity. I mean, that's something that is a very lucrative skill. It's also a very compelling skill for attracting the people that you want in your circle. So in my book, I talked about how to identify and attract a mentor. And the first thing I led with is literally just creating that own momentum for yourself. I call them the key momentum indicators. If you have characteristics that show that you're creating your own momentum, mentors will appear in your life. But if you don't create your own momentum and you're just going around asking for people to help you with a favor or something like that, it's not going to happen for you. The angle is simple. I'm going 150 miles an hour towards something awesome. You want to help me go 160 and the right people do want to help you go 160 for a lot of interesting reasons, one of which is they're competitive. And I don't necessarily mean that they don't want to see you succeed and they want to succeed. Some people, the mentors that you want to be guided by, they are competitive in terms of the positive influence that they can have on the world. And they will, and I've seen this happen many times, give you the playbook of their own success. And then all you have to do is execute on that. And that is the way to be an expert in anything in rapid space. Oh my gosh, how long did it take you to do blank? And the answer is, whoa, that's amazing. So the speed of execution, the momentum and all of that, you have to be able to generate that. The only way to do that is output. So ramp the output up and then you can backfill those productivity hacks and stuff and build a team and all those things. Hunter, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Excellent stuff. Really appreciate your time and keep up the good work. Happy to do it.